Hi, my name is Mike Herbster. I'm privileged to be the director of Southland Christian Camp Ministries. For over 25 years, Southland has centered itself around the ministry of preaching. We believe that God uses the foolishness of preaching to convict hearts and transform lives. Our prayer is that today's sermon would push you to become more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As you listen, would you carefully evaluate your life in light of God's Word and take the appropriate action to grow in your walk with Him? We hope that you will enjoy today's message. morning Philippians chapter 3 and uh, so good to see you this morning how many of you are tired let me see your hand you're tired okay all right yeah I am too and I tell you having a great time together and uh, tell you what a great uh, few days that we've had uh, together as well and looking forward uh, to uh, what God is going to do during the rest of our time what a great opportunity you have to start 2020 uh, by hearing some preaching having some fun making uh uh, making some good friends, uh, having fun, uh, but making some good decisions as well. In uh, just a few minutes, you'll be able to have your uh, God night time for 2020. And I trust that you'll go home and you'll develop a lifelong habit of being in God's Word. And I trust that that'll be a great blessing too. Well, Julia Philippians chapter 3, going to look at verses 13 and 14. And uh, really, the messages today I'm going to center around having the new year. And uh, really some messages to help encourage you as you begin 2020. As you look at Philippians chapter 3 in verse 13, just two verses, I'll pray, and then we'll ask the Lord to help us during our time together. Philippians chapter 3, verse 13. Brethren, I count on myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth into those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I want to preach to you a message this morning simply entitled, Rules for the Race. Father, thank you for the time that we have, and we pray that, Lord, you would just fight through the tiredness that we've had. We've had a lot of fun, and I pray that you would help us as we fight through that tiredness, as we press on this morning. But Lord, would you just do your wonderful work in our hearts and in our lives? Father, would you help us as the Apostle Paul to finish our course, to fight the good fight of faith, and to finish that with joy and faithfulness? And Father, would you strengthen us as we run into 2020 and help us to live for you and not look back and help us to trust you and leave all the consequences up to you. Lord, we pray that you would sustain us, that your hand would guide us, that you would bless us as we seek to live for you this new year. Lord, would you help us to run this race effectively? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It was several years ago that I had a friend of mine uh, who shall, uh, I won't embarrass, but his last name is Herbster. And uh, he called me up and he says, hey, Ron, I'm going to run a marathon. And I said, good for you. Because I know exactly why he was calling me. He wanted me to run a marathon with him. And I said, good for you. He says, listen, man, I want you to run a marathon with me. 
And I'm like, you're crazy. I know how long a marathon is. It's 26.2 miles. You know why it's 26.2 miles? Because in ancient Greece, they had a battle and they won. And the messenger of Greece ran to go tell the king, he was in the town of Marathon, ran to go tell the king that they had won. And the town was 26 miles away. When the messenger got there, he told the king that they had won the battle. And then the messenger dropped dead of a heart attack. I can identify with that guy. And uh, that's why it's 26 miles. And for some crazy reason, ever since, people have been running 26.2 miles in something called a marathon. I'm like, you're crazy, man. What would possess anybody to run four hours and 26 miles? He's like, come on, man, it'll be fun. I'm like, you have a seriously, you seriously have a different definition of fun than what I have. He said, come on, man, we'll run the marathon together. We'll make a memory. I'm like, what are you, a girl? I don't care about that. That's creepy, you know? And he says, hey, just, just look at your calendar. Where are you preaching around, uh, around uh, I think it was like March 26th, and then we were gonna run in Washington, D.C. I looked at my calendar, and I kid you not, I was preaching in Salisbury, Maryland. And I think he knew that before he called me. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to have to run this stupid marathon. And so against better judgment, I consented to run this 26.2 mile marathon. And you know what the hardest part of the marathon is? It's all the training. You've got to run like 25 to 30 miles per week for four months before this marathon. And, uh, and so I was already doing all the shorter runs, you know, about five to six miles. And, and uh, so two months before the marathon, I had not done any of my longer runs. You're supposed to do one long run and then all these shorter runs for the week. Then the next week, you increase the long run by 10%. And so you do that just to kind of build up slowly. Well, I had not run more than eight miles uh, in my life, and I'm two months out from the marathon. I looked at Chris and my wife and says, I have got to get out there. I've got to do one of my longer runs. We were in, I was preaching in Phoenix, Arizona, and, uh, and so uh, I said, uh, you know what, Kristen, I, this is where I'll be. If I don't come back in three hours, come get me. And, or just send the ambulance and the National Guard or whoever, you know what. And I went out and I ran 18 miles. I got, uh, I had brand new shoes that I had worn before. I got plantar fasciitis. I was wearing a camel back for water, you know, and my, I, I just did everything wrong. You know, my shoulders were all sore. And, and, um, and so finally comes the day of the marathon. And so we had a friend that lives right there in downtown DC. And so we, I, I had to drive through the night. I had to move my trailer from the meeting I was preaching at to the next one. And so I get to DC like 1 a.m. And then I sleep for four hours. And then we wake up at five to go out to the starting line to start our marathon, uh, you know, that started at seven. And I'm thinking, man, I, I'm gonna die. I just, I just wanted to make it through that day. I didn't care if I finished the marathon, you know. And so it's like 34 degrees. We're all freezing cold, but there's, a trick they teach you that to put on a trash, you put a trash bag on uh, over here, you kind of poke a hole through it and put it on, and you kind of wear that and kind of run like this with this trash can over you, and, or trash can, trash bag, and it's really light, and about two to three miles in, you start to sweat, and that traps in all the body heat, and it kind of is like wearing a coat almost. It kind of keeps the heat in, and then two to three miles in, you could rip that trash bag off and lay it on the ground, and they come behind you and pick all that stuff up. I mean, there are people that go to Goodwill, 
and they buy hats and gloves like for a dollar. And, uh, and when they get warm, they throw them down on the road. They come back, collect all that, and then they donate it back to Goodwill. And it's just kind of how they do it. So, so there's like 10,000 of us, the gun goes off, and there's 10,000 people that start to descend upon our nation's capital, all wearing trash bags. We look like a bunch of California raisins invading the national capital. I thought, what cult did I just join? Man, you know what? And, uh, and so uh, two, three miles in, I ripped that trash bag off and I was like, man, this is kind of nice. We're running down the streets of DC. Man, there's the Capitol. The mayor of DC is running right next to me. There was a guy that owned a Chick-fil-A and he had a Chick-fil-A cow filled with helium tied to his hat. You always knew where that dude was in the marathon. You could see this cow 15 feet above the crowd, you know, just flying through it. And so uh, about... Uh, and, and seven, and one hour in, I made it to mile marker seven. I thought, man, this is kind of nice, you know. And, and then something tragic happened at mile marker seven. We ran right by a Starbucks. <laughs> I thought, who laid this course out? Th- there were people leaving the race, going in, ordering a latte. I mean, they had their runner bib number on and everything. And I could hear them yelling back at their friends, hey, I trained four months for this race. So I might as well enjoy it. And I thought to myself, how many of God's people who should be running a race are stuck in the Starbucks of life? All the side things that really don't do anything for the race, but they live as if those were the main things. Boy, there's a lot of us that do that. Well, I got to mile marker 13. I kid you not, there is this sign. It said full marathoners this way, half marathoners this way. I kid you not, 95% of the crowd was going off on the half marathon, you know? And I could see like two other people in front of me and I'm like, well, there's two other idiots out here other than me, you know? And I passed that 13.1 mile marker and I thought, okay, here we go. I, the 13.1 miles I just ran, none of that matters. I have to do this all over again. We made it to mile marker 15. We rounded JFK Stadium. The man that won the marathon was already done. A guy yells out, hey, the winner's 11 miles ahead of us. I said, you have the gift of encouragement, don't you? You know what? And, and we could hear him on, on the speakers, and he was saying, yeah, these people that run marathons four and five hours, I don't know how they do that. I've never run that long in my life. You know what? Out loud, I'm yelling, shut up, man. He finished in two hours and 20 minutes. I mean, that's like a marathon. Uh, that's like an Olympic marathon time. I mean, he's running like a five, a sub six minute mile, like a five minute mile for 20 seconds. That's almost superhuman to me, you know? And so we get to mile marker 18 and uh, mile marker 20. And this is where most people start to hit the wall. That's what they call it. Your body stops burning sugar and starts burning fat. And you think that's like, that would be a good thing. But this is where people start to hallucinate. This is where people just quit and they just kind of lose their mind. I didn't hit the wall, but I just, I couldn't keep the pace that I was keeping. So I started to slow down uh, uh, just a, just a, just a, a, a small bit. Um, got to mile marker 22, 23. There was a guy, a mile marker 20. He was supposed to run the race with us, another one of our preacher friends, but he had some wits about him. He didn't run. He had actually registered for it. He ran underneath the rope and he ran the next six miles with me. And uh, man, I tell you, I cannot tell you how much that encouragement was. Man, just keep going. You're going to finish. And I said, man, thanks for running with me. He says, you know what? Everybody needs a wingman. And I tell you, isn't that what church ought to be? As we're running for the Lord, does someone come next to you when things get tough and put their arm around and says, hey, we're gonna do this together. 
Everybody needs a wingman. And as I ran that race, all of these passages started to flood my mind of Paul using the imagery that of a runner. He used it several times in the New Testament, but we find one of those passages here in Philippians chapter three. In Philippians chapter three, Paul takes three looks at life. First of all, in verses one through 11, Paul takes a look at the past. And we see Paul the accountant as he describes new values that he discovered when he met Jesus Christ. Well, then Paul takes a look at the present, verses 12 through 16, and uh, we see the imagery, not that of an accountant, but that of an athlete. It almost is the imagery of a runner who is straining every muscle he has to finish that race. Well, and then in verse 17 to the rest of the chapter, Paul takes a look at the future and we see Paul the alien. And he says, you know what? My citizenship is not of this world, but it's of another country yet to come. You know what? Praise God. We're all just strangers passing through. Then why are you putting down roots? Why do you live as if this is all there is? But I want us to look at Philippians chapter three in verses 13 and 14. Paul just gives us four principles, how we can run the race effectively, how just like Paul, we can get to the end of our life and look back and says, I fought the fight. I finished my course with joy and we could be faithful and we can hear well done, thou good and faithful servant. Really four principles, how you can run the Christian race and you can run and you can run well. Well, would you look at Philippians chapter three and would you look at verse 13? He says, brethren. So he's writing to the people at the church of Philippi. Remember, this was the same city when Paul got to Philippi. They didn't even have enough men to form a synagogue. You needed 10 families or 10 men to form a synagogue. They didn't even have that. There were just women meeting on the outside of the town and, and they were praying. Lydia was one of them. And uh, probably later they met in her and her home. She was a wealthy woman and... Uh, and so when he got there, he met these women that were praying and, and there, was a, a, uh, there were people that had a girl possessed with a demon and they were using her to make money as they were trying to tell the fortunes of people and Paul cast that demon out and uh, they kind of lost the goose that was laying the golden egg. They couldn't make their money anymore and so they got really mad at Paul and they threw Paul in prison and they beat him. And I tell you, when the people of Philippi found out that Paul was a Roman citizen and they imprisoned him, man, that was a no-no. They, man, they knew they had messed up bad. They're like, you get out of here and you don't even come back here again. This is the people that he's writing to, the believers that are at the, at the church of Philippi. He says, brethren, back in Paul's day, in order to be a participant of the games, you had to be a citizen of that country. So in other words, in this passage, Paul was not telling you how to get saved and how to get into the race. The day that you got saved is the day that you enlisted for this race. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior, every single one of you are registered and you're supposed to be running the race and God has a great plan for you. And really Paul is saying, listen, you can run, man, and you can run well. He says, brethren, look back at verse 13. He says, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. He uses the word count there, and that was an accounting term. And it meant uh, really a reckoning. It meant if you were balancing up the books. And it was an accounting term. And you know what Paul was saying? As I take a spiritual audit of my life, 
Paul was looking at his life and where he was spiritually. Well, he says, when I take a spiritual audit of my life and where I am spiritually, I don't count myself to have apprehended. That word apprehended is an interesting word. It means to take hold of. And so, the, and so in Greek, what happens is when you add a preposition to one of these verbs, it intensifies the meaning. And that's what he does with kata lambano. That's this word here. And not only means to lay hold of, it means to take hold of with the utmost certainty. And you know what Paul was saying? When I consider my own life, I don't take a spiritual audit and think, man, I've arrived. I've ascended to the top of the mountain and there's nothing else that God needs to do in my own heart. You know what his attitude was? He was like, man, I'm the biggest sinner among you. In fact, he wrote Timothy. He said, Christ Jesus that came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And he said, man, I'm the biggest sinner among you. In 1 Corinthians, he's talking to these people about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all the evidences and how Jesus appeared to all these people. And it says, and last of all, he appeared to me, a man born out of due time. And as you read the Pauline corpus, you just get this sense that Paul never got over what the Lord had done for him. He had persecuted the church and all of the sin that Paul had done, it had just been forgiven. He never got over what God had done for him. In Philippians chapter four, he says, I had to learn to be content in whatever situation I was in. That didn't come natural to Paul. Man, he had to learn that. And you know what Paul is saying? He says, man, I haven't arrived. Man, there's a lot of work that God needs to do in my own heart. And you know what, gang? If the apostle Paul had made it, I'm pretty sure none of us have either. There's not a perfect person in this room. I didn't roll into Southland and wonder, man, I wonder if these people at the winter teen retreat have sin. I know you do. You say, well, that's presumptuous. How do you know that? Because you're breathing and you have a pulse. You know what? All of us fail. All of us make mistakes. There's not a perfect person in this room and praise God, we're just sinners saved by grace. Isn't that wonderful? And God still loves us anyway. But here we see the very first principle is number one, you gotta get dissatisfied where you are spiritually. Paul didn't just say, hey, listen, man, if there is anybody who can make their boast of the law, it was Paul. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, circumcised the eighth day, trained to the best teachers, and come from the, from the best tribe out of, out of Israel. And so if there's anybody who can make their boast of the law, it was Paul. And he didn't think, man, I've attained. There's no more work that God needs to do in my heart. You know, Paul got dissatisfied where he was spiritually. You know what some kids in this room, and even some of the sponsors, by the way, sponsor, just because you drove the van doesn't mean you're right with God either, right? And you know what? We get so satisfied where we are spiritually, and we start to coast. Some of you are coasting and living off decisions that you made last summer at camp. Listen, you can't survive on the manna that you had three weeks ago out of God's word. You need fresh manna for today. And sometimes we get so satisfied where we are and we just start to coast, not Paul. He realized that he was a sinner and he had a correct assessment of his own self and he realized that he was a sinner that God needed him. Listen, if 2020 is gonna be the greatest year of your life, you gotta get dissatisfied where you are spiritually. God, there's so much more that you have for me. And that takes a humility. 
In fact, keep your finger in Philippians 3. We're going to come back to it. Would you turn over to Acts chapter 24, or Acts chapter 18, rather? I just want you to see a passage that God tremendously challenged me with uh, several years ago. In Acts chapter 18, in verse 24, we meet a man named Apollos. In Acts chapter 18, in verse 24. All right, so here we meet Apollos. In verse 24, and a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man, and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. So here's where we meet Apollos. He was an Egyptian-born Jew, and he was a preacher of God. But notice how the Bible describes Apollos. And a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man. In other words, Apollos, this guy, he was a communicator. Man, this guy, he was no Number one, a persuasive speaker. He was an eloquent, he had an eloquent uh, tongue. This guy was a communicator. This guy was a wordsmith. He knew how to craft the language in such a way where it really just communicated with people and those that he talked to, he really connected with them. Man, this guy had a golden tongue and silver lips as it was. He was number one, a persuasive speaker. But notice what it also says, that Apollos was an eloquent man mighty in the scriptures. Number two, he was a powerful speaker. Nowhere else in the Bible does this superlative or title appear to anybody else other than Apollos. Mighty in the scriptures. Doesn't say it of Daniel, doesn't say it of Moses, doesn't say it of Jeremiah or Isaiah, doesn't say it of John, doesn't say it of Peter, doesn't say it of anybody, but it says it of this man, Apollos. In other words, he had an excellent command of the Old Testament scriptures. This guy was a persuasive speaker. He was a powerful speaker. Look at verse 25. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the spirit. Thirdly, he was a passionate speaker. He just didn't get up there and didactically just read an academic lesson and just transfer intellectual knowledge. He was preaching the truth that had first gripped his own heart and man, there was a passion to him. Man, he believed what he was saying and what he was preaching. There was a fervency about him. But notice in verse 25 that he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord. And you know, uh, fourthly, uh, uh, Really, this guy was not a persuasive, only a, a persuasive speaker, a powerful speaker, a passionate speaker. He was a persistent speaker. He was diligent. He didn't care who was out there in the crowd, and he faithfully thundered out the message of God's word, and he diligently did so. But look at verse 26, and he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and there was no fear of, of man in this guy. You know what, as you're reading this text, you could easily begin to think, you know what, man, this guy was a persuasive speaker, powerful, he's passionate, he was a persistent speaker. Man, this could quite arguably one of the greatest preachers on the planet. But notice that the Bible said that uh, knowing only the baptism of John. So this guy knew that Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world because he heard John say that or John had said that. But man, there was a lot of things changing. He was a transitional Jew as well. And what I mean by that, there was a lot of things changing right now, wasn't there? There was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate game changer. There was the coming of the Holy Spirit. There were all the sign gifts that were given, which I believe have now ceased, but they were given to, to give veracity to the preaching of God's word. There, were, there was a lot of things changing and so here is uh, Paul, uh, or I'm sorry, here is Apollos, and, and, uh, and so there are a lot of things changing that he's not aware of, and notice what the Bible says 
In verse 26, when we began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. This guy could have quite argued been the greatest preacher on the planet. Remember in 1 Corinthians, the church was dividing apart into different groups and factions. And some said, well, I'm of Paul. And others said, well, we are of Apollos. Here was a man that rivaled that, the ministry, the apostle Paul, and was probably a better public order than Paul was. And yet he was willing to be taken aside and taught by a tent maker and his wife. He could have said, don't you know who I am? Don't you know all my credentials? Don't you know how greatly God has used me? Apollos didn't care about any of that. He cared about him. And he was so glad to be taught by a tent maker and his wife. When I read this text, I thought, oh God, would you give me this kind of humility to the day that I die? Tell you, gang, if you're ever gonna make it, get dissatisfied where you are. Don't coast. God is so much more from you. Number one, you gotta get dissatisfied where you are spiritually. Go back to Philippians chapter three and verse 13. Notice he says, brethren, I count on myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. I love passages like that. It's very simple for a guy like me. I can follow what God wants me to do. He said, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. And so here we not only see Paul got dissatisfied with where he was spiritually, but number two, here we see Paul's direction. And we see Paul's direction that he was willing to forget those things that were in the past and to press on for greater things. Really, he had to, had to have a forgetful mindset that was, that was about him. Forgetting those things, and he says in verse 13, forgetting those things which are behind. You know what, gang? If you're going to make it in 2020, you got to forget a lot of stuff. You know, first of all, if you're gonna make it in 2020, you've gotta forget your past failures. If they've been forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ, you gotta forget your past failures. You know, really the imagery here is a runner running a race and he's constantly looking behind him. Well, if you're looking behind you and on everybody else, you trip, you fall over, and other people trip over you. When I was running that race, uh, you know, there, were, there was this guy, he was wearing khaki pants, a button-down shirt, and a camelback on, and boom, he just flew right by me. And I was like, what in the world is that guy's deal, man? He looks like he's dressed going, going to, you know, to, like, to work or something, you know? And, and he's running this marathon. Uh, this woman passed me, and I'm like, you know what, if I weighed 110 10 pounds ring and wet, I'd be running that fast too, you know? And, uh, and you know what, you, know what you, you gotta learn? You gotta get your eyes off other people. None of them are gonna run the race for you. You gotta run it yourself. You know what Paul's saying? If you're gonna make it in 2020, you've gotta forget your past failures. Listen, gang, the name devil in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word slanderer. The devil loves to come to you and he whispers in your ear, oh, you really think God's gonna use you in 2020? Hey, I know what you did last summer. Hey, you really think God's gonna use you in 2020? Hey, I know the websites that you went to last week when nobody was around. I know what you look at on your phone and on your tablet. Oh, you really think God's gonna use you? Yeah, I know the things that you did on that date that nobody knows about. 
You really think God's going to use you? And you know what the devil does? He brings up all your past failures, and he is the accuser of the brethren. But listen, gang, if you've been forgiven by God, and you've asked God to forgive you, the Bible says that we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you've asked God to forgive you, God throws your sin in the sea of his forgetfulness. He separates it as far as from the east to the west. God remembers your sin no longer, and you shouldn't either. If your past has been forgiven, you know what? You ought to forget it. Because God doesn't remember it. Well, preacher, there are some things I can never forget. Let me ask you a question. Does God really ever forget? Of course he knows what you've done. But when you're forgiven, he chooses not to hold you accountable for it. Some of you are thinking, man, if 2020 is going to be anything like 2019, man, I'm not going to make it. If you're looking at all the failures you had in 2019, of course you're going to fail. But you know what, gang? Just as we enter in this new year and you've got a brand new year ahead of you, listen, if you know the Lord, you've got a clean slate that you can work off. God has forgiven you. And if you're not right with God, he can forgive you right here and right now. You can go into this year right with God and you have a clean slate. The future is just as bright as God's promises. You gotta forget your past failures. Number two, you need to forget the past failures of others. I can preach on bitterness and forgiveness every week. You know what, gang, I realize that there are some of you sitting out here this morning that you, somebody has genuinely done you dirty. You have been wronged. Has somebody very close to you ever hurt you deeply? That's a wound that's hard to describe to somebody else if they've never had that. And I get it. I know where you're at. And maybe somebody so close to you hurt you so deeply. And man, there's just this black cloud that hangs over you every day. And it's so easy to be so angry and so mad. And you know what bitterness is? As I said the other day, it's really that sin of selfishness. And, and we're choosing not to forgive them. You know what, preacher? You know what? They don't deserve to be forgiven. And you know what? I might agree with you. Yeah, they don't deserve to be forgiven, but none of us deserve to be forgiven by Christ. And Paul's saying, you got to forget your past failures, but you need to forget the past failures of others. When Joseph got down to Egypt, he had two kids. He named him Ephraim and Manasseh. You know what those names mean? God has caused me to forget all the toil of my land. And the other name meant God has caused me to be fruitful. You know what? Forgiveness plus forgetfulness, it equals fruitfulness. Forgiveness plus forgetfulness equals fruitfulness. Somebody ought to tweet that. And, I, and let me tell you, when you just forgive that other person, and man, you just give it to the Lord. You know what? God's going to deal with that. God, give him what he's deserved. That's not my job. And you just turn your back on that and you forget, man, that's when you can really be fruitful. But some of you are holding on to some of the, some of the things that people have done to you. And it is like a cancer that is going to rot your soul. And it's just going to fester and get bigger and bigger and bigger. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. 
There is a progression there. You know what it starts with? Bitterness. Bitterness is an inward resentment against somebody else. When they walk into the room, man, your spirit doesn't gravitate to them. It gravitates away from them. And maybe nobody could see it. It's all inside. It's this little bitterness and wrath. The Greek word for wrath there has the idea of a bunch of rags that are on top of each other. They're not on fire yet, but there's smoke coming out from under them. It means to intensify the heat or to boil, and it's smoldering, and the smoke is coming, and the heat is beginning to intensify. And the longer you let that bitterness go, that's where it starts, and that's why the Bible says looking diligently lets any root of bitterness, because that's where it starts. And you let that bitterness go, and you don't forgive and forget. The rags of your heart begin to smolder, and the heat begins to intensify and it says let all bitterness and wrath and that's all internal and nobody may ever see it he says let all bitterness and wrath and anger you know what the next step is it's called anger you know what anger is it's an outward explosion of all of that inside bitterness and wrath and maybe your mom says one thing to you or somebody does one little thing to you and kaboom it just explodes and now pours out all this bitterness and this wrath What's the next step in claimer? That's what the Bible says. We don't use that word anymore. We did about 100 years ago. You know what claimer is? It's yelling, shouting. That's when you're talking to your mom and dad and the conversation now goes up a couple decibels and you start yelling at them. It's when you're talking to your brother and sister and the conversation gets a little bit louder and you get louder to get more emphatic to get your point across to those people. Then it says evil speaking. This is where all the cursing comes in. Now come the words that are intended to bite and to wound and to hurt. That are like arrows you're shooting out of your mouth just to hurt other people and to cut them down. Be put away from you with all malice. You know what malice is? Physical injury. That's when someone gives the push or they throw the punch or they go grab a knife or they go get a gun. And you say, preacher, well, I'm not to that point. Yeah, but you're just a couple exits back on the same highway. And there's been bitterness and wrath. And man, some of you can't get through a week without a major blow up with somebody in your family. And the clamor and the evil speaking. You're not gonna make it. Man, you're not gonna make it. But you can, and you can run, and you can run well. You gotta forget your past failures. You gotta forget the past failures of others and forgive them, and the answer is always the cross. The scripture says, and be kind, tenderhearted one to another, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. The answer is always the cross. You say, preacher, you don't know what they've done to me. I don't know what they've done to you, but have they ever put nails in your hands? Do they ever take a spear and thrust it into your side? Do they ever nail you to a Roman wooden cross? Do they ever beat you unrecognizable as a human being? You know what? Consider him. Well, preacher, it's too hard to walk an extra mile down a difficult road with somebody who irritates me, agitates me, or somebody who has hurt me. I'm sure it was hard to walk the Calvary Road. As our Lord drugged that cross to the streets of Jerusalem, it's a road in Jerusalem called the Via Della Rosa. And as he walked that path, you know what he did that? For you, I'm sure it was hard to do that. You know what? Consider him. He did all of that for you. Meditate on the cross because people who realize that they've been forgiven much, you know what we, would, we do? We forgive much. 
And we can do that through the power of a risen Savior. You've got to forget your past failures. You've got to forget the past failures of others. But number three, you need to forget your past victories. Now, you ought to always remember what the Lord has done. David said, I muse on the works of old. You always ought to remember the great things that God has done. But here's the point. Don't coast on them. Coasting is one of the worst things you could ever do spiritually. Again, as I've already said, some of you, you're just relying on decisions that you made as a camper maybe last summer or a decision you made in a revival meeting or a decision in your personal time and you are just coasting. Let me tell you, you're not going to make it. Stop coasting! And in 2020, man, press on for greater things. You gotta get dissatisfied where you are spiritually. Number two, we see Paul's direction. You have to have a forgetful mindset and to forget your past failures, the failures of others, and uh, forget your past victories. Gang, do you really believe that the greatest, your greatest days could be ahead of you? Do you? Your greatest days can be ahead of you. But you've got to press on for greater things and not be content with where you are right now. Look back at Philippians 3 in verse 13. At the end of verse 13, he says, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. And here, really, we see Paul's determination. And so he was determined that he was going to fervently serve the Lord. So now the participle has, the, has this idea. It's not a runner who's looking behind him. Now it's a runner who is straining every muscle he has to get to the finish line. So what Paul does here is he takes the verb to stretch. And now he adds two prepositions to do it to it. So he doubly intensifies this word. So it not only means to stretch, man, but it means to really stretch to the point of breaking. And you know what? Every single one of us, you know what Paul's determination was? That he was going to serve God with everything he had, that he would willingly and gladly be spent for the cause of Christ, that he wasn't holding anything back. He was living for God with everything that he had, and he was going to fervently and passionately serve his king. Man, if you're going to run, you know what? You got to give God your best. And you know what the fact is? Stop giving God what's left over and give him your best. A missionary friend of mine is in a foreign land where the common practice of the day is to offer your child as a human sacrifice. Many times they would throw their firstborn into the river. The crocodiles would come and eat the kids. It's a horrific practice. One particular day, a a young mom of 21 years of age had a basket of twins. She was coming to give her sacrifice to their pagan god. One of the kids, the the babies, was the picture of perfect health. The other baby looked like it was going to die in a matter of of days. And the missionary thought, well, she shouldn't throw any in, but at least she's going to throw the child that's going to die in. This other kid has all his life ahead of him. To his astonishment, she picked up that baby, the picture of perfect health. She walked over to the edge of the river. She reared her hands back. The crocodiles started to gather and slash around in the water. Before she could throw the child in the missionary, ran down to the edge of the river, and before she threw the child in, he grabbed the woman's arm, and in her own language, he dialogued with her. He says, ma'am, what are you doing? This child over here is going to die in a matter of days. 
this child that's all its life ahead of him, you shouldn't throw any in, but at least throw the child in that's going to die. She ripped her hand out of the missionary's hand. She turned and she looked at him. She said, I don't know what kind of God you serve, but my God demands the best. And you know what, gang? The God of the Bible, he demands your best, not what's left over. He gave the best he had for you, his only son. And we just give him what's left over. Do you really give God the best of your time? Let me tell you, there are some guys in this room, you sit and play Fortnite for five hours, you can't read your Bible five minutes. That's called idolatry. And you're not right with God. Oh, you're gonna find time to do whatever you wanna do. You can sit and you can watch a two-hour movie, but you can't read God's word two minutes. By the way, guys, I knew some guys that can sit in a tree stand in 30-degree weather and go hunting for five hours, but they don't read their Bible five minutes either. This isn't just for the kids. This is for us. Well, God, if I got some time at the end of the day, and we give God what's left over. What's really important to you, you're gonna find time to do that. If you have never made this decision, or maybe it's been a long time, you need to decide right here, right now, this morning, that you're gonna take time, and you're gonna spend time with God every day in his word, every day of 2020. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. The word redeem means to seize or to buy back. The word time is not the word chronos. The Greek word chronos, we get our English word chronology from that word. It's the Greek word for opportunity. And Paul is saying, listen, because you and I live in a wicked pornographic society, we ought to be seizing every moment. We ought to be snatching up every opportunity that God gives to us. And you know what? We ought to be redeeming the time because the days are evil. Listen, gang, you show me where you spend your time and I'll show you your God. God. Give God the best of your time. Give God the best of your talents. Let me tell you, there are some people in this room, God has given you some great talents. You ought to be using those for him. There are some people here, you are gifted incredibly musically. That is a gift from God. I play the radio and then I get static. You know, it's just not something that I have and God just didn't give me that way. But some of you, you could pick up an instrument and you could just play anything. That's a gift. Man, you ought to use it for him. Some of you can just take apart an engine and you could figure out what's wrong and put it back together and you're mechanically inclined. Let me tell you, that's a gift. You ought to use that for him. Some of you are really good at math and that's super creepy, but whatever, you know what? And, you know, I might be working for you one day, I don't know. And, uh, but you know what, let me tell you, that's a gift. And you know what running the race is? It's leveraging all that you have and all who you are for his glory. Stop giving him what's left over. Man, give him your best. You need to serve him 
fervently and diligently, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. The Bible says of Phineas in the Old Testament, for he was zealous for his God. Don't tell me people don't get passionate about the stuff that they love. Let me tell you, you can get 100,000 people to go into a football stadium and watch Ohio State and Michigan play. You could go to a NASCAR track and you could fill it up to the tune of 100,000 people watching a bunch of drivers making four left-hand turns for five hours, but to each his own. And you know what? Don't tell me people don't get passionate about the stuff that they love and that they can get passionate about a sport or they can get passionate about a hobby. It's about time God's young people in this room, you get passionate for him. Stop giving him what's left over. Give him your best. Living the Christian life requires energy. God strengthens us, but the scripture says, exercise yourself to godliness. It's the Greek word gymnazo. We get our English word gymnasium from that word. It it says striving for holiness. You're not just gonna live for God and come to the end of 2020 and say, man, I live for God and God did some amazing things by accident. It doesn't happen that way. You gotta get up. It takes work. It takes effort. It takes spiritual sweat for you to get up, to get your face into God's word and to find out who is the author of this passage. Who are the recipients? What did this word mean in first century Mediterranean living? Hey, where does this word appear other times in the New Testament? And look at the cross references and put on the scuba gear get off of the dinghy, dive down deep and start to mine out the truths of God's word. You know what? It takes some work. Stop giving them what's left over and give them your best. We see Paul's determination. He was gonna serve him fervently and passionately. But look at the very last rule that Paul gives to us. It's in Philippians chapter three and it's in verse 14. He says this, he says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You see a word there. It's the word I press toward the mark. That is the Greek word skopos. It's the only time it appears in the New Testament in this form. And you know what a skopos is? A skopos was something in the distance that you would use as a guide. And you would just keep your eye on that and train it on that. Listen, if you've ever cut a large field, you know what you're doing? You pick a tree on the other side of the field and head right to that tree. And when you get to the other side, you look back and you know what? Because you had a guide, you planted or you cut a straight line. You turn around, you pick a tree on the other side of the field, head right to that tree, and that helps to cut a straight line. A scopus is something in the distance that you would focus on. I was on a five-mile run uh, in New Hampshire, and uh, I was running on these paths. They take all the railroad uh, paths or old railroads and turn them in to pathways. They call it from rails to trails. And uh, some are miles long, and you can run them. And I was on a five-mile run, and uh, I had run four miles, and I was almost done. I had one mile left, and I could see the yellow gate where I started. I'm like, oh man, there it is. I only got one mile left. Well, man, you know what you find yourself doing? Every step you take, you're getting closer and closer and closer to that yellow gate. And man, you look down, you got half a mile left. You're man, man, I'm running a six minute mile. Man, I can't keep this up. But man, there it is. If I could just hang on another two minutes, man, I'll be done. And just step after step. And before you know what, I was at that yellow gate. Don't you know that out of the five miles that I ran, the fastest of them was the last mile. You know why? Because I had a scopos. You know what this scopos is for the Christian? It's the glory of God. 
When you are focused on that, and that's the goal, you're not distracted, and, and everything is about that. When you have that kind of scopus, scopus and that kind of focus, man, I'm telling you, you are able to do some amazing things for the Lord. And here we see not only Paul's determination, but uh, really here we see Paul's dedication. Nothing else to the apostle Paul in life mattered. He said, I count uh, all these things as dung that I may win Christ. And he was so Christ-centered. He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know what? As I live this life and I have Christ, man, that's great. If I die, I'm gonna go be with him. Man, it's a win-win either way. But it was all about him. He said, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. And to the Christian that runs and runs well the Christian life. Life is not about them, it's about God. Gang, can I tell you that life is not about you. It's about him. And it's all for his glory. And it's all for him. And there was nothing in Paul's life that detracted from who the Lord was. He says, you know, follow me as I follow Christ. And he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings be made conformable unto his death. That's what it was all about. It was all about him. So every decision, every word, every thought, everything Paul did, it was all for the glory of God. You know what it means to bring God glory? In the Hebrew, uh, in the Hebrew, the word glory means to add weight to. You know what giving God glory is? It is to add weight to somebody else's estimation as to how great God is. Our life ought to bring him glory. Let me tell you, could I go into your car or onto your phone, your tablet, or into your room and listen to your music and say, wow, that's what God must be like. Could I go through your internet, uh, internet browsing history over the last two months? I go, wow, that's what God must be like. What about if we reviewed everything you watched on TV, everything you streamed from Hulu, from Amazon Prime, Netflix, from every DVD you got out of Redbox, and say, wow, that's what God must be like. That's why you're not gonna make it. It's because you're living for yourself. I'm telling you, if you just get this one thing, it radically changes everything. Listen, he gave you eternal life. And we can't hand him the remote to the TV. But yet we want to argue and we want to complain about having to give up our rock music. He died on a cross and he saved you eternally. Oh, we say that we love him, but do we really? Life's all about him. And maybe you use the curse words and you take God's name in vain. Man, you're not giving him glory. You are breaking and tearing. You are tearing somebody's estimation down as to how great he is. And for the apostle Paul, you know what? There was a dedication. Life wasn't about him. It was all about God. And there was a focus on him and not on himself. And it's the idea of a runner running the race that he's looking at the finish line. And you know what? That's what it's all about. I rounded the corner at mile marker 26. And there it was. There was the finish line. And uh, you know, something amazing happens when you see that finish line. You forget about all the hurt. <laughs> what body part is hurting at that moment? <laughs> you forget about all the pain. 
You forget about all the stuff that just happened the last four hours called a marathon, because there it is. One-tenth of a mile. Man, there it is. I mean, there's five or 10,000 people around you. They're all cheering. They don't know who you are. They don't care. Man, you're gonna finish a marathon. And man, you start running in your mind. You think, man, I'm running faster than I've ever run in my life. And really, you're like crawling. You know what? And man, you're running as fast as you can. And man, I was trucking thinking, man, I'm running as fast as I've ever run in my life. I ran past that finish line. They took the medal. They put it around me. Of course, my medal fell off the ribbon. Clang, clang, clang all over the ground. It was kind of anticlimactic. Young people, can I tell you this morning that there is coming a day that you are gonna drop this robe of flesh and that we are, if you're a Christian, we are gonna cross the swelling Jordan and there is coming a day just as real as the chairs you're sitting on that we are gonna step out and we are gonna breathe new air and we're gonna find it celestial. And we will not see him in part, but we will see him as he is. And we'll be greeted by his nail-scarred hands. And the nail prints in his feet. When we get to heaven, no one's going to have to tell us, that's Jesus, oh, we'll know him. And we'll know him by those nail prints at his hands. And that's him. That's the scope, boss. And there's coming a day you're gonna run into the arms of Jesus and he'll say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, and you will live in heaven forever. Listen, if you're saved, we're going to heaven. And that's the scope, boss. Live today as if today was that day. And live with that kind of focus. And live with that kind of fervency. Gang, I'm telling you, 2020 could be the greatest year of your life if you just get dissatisfied where you are spiritually. If you see Paul's direction, he had that forgetful mindset. You see Paul's determination to serve God fervently and spiritually and passionately. And see Paul's dedication to have the right goal and a focus like a laser on that. If you'll do that, 2020 could be the greatest year of your life and you could hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Years ago at the Edgewater Hotel in Chicago, the most world successful financiers met at a Chicago hotel, the Edgewater Hotel in Chicago. They were the most wealthiest men on the planet. Collectively, they controlled more money that was in the United States Treasury at the time. The media encouraged the youth of the nation to follow their example. They lifted these men up as pictures of success. Present at this meeting was the president of the largest independent steel company, the greatest wheat speculator, the head of the world's greatest monopoly, a member of the president's cabinet, and uh, the president of the New York Stock Exchange. And these men were the most wealthiest men on the planet, held up as pictures of success. But 25 years later, you go back and see what happened to these men.
The man who owned the largest independent steel company, Charles Schwab, lived on borrowed money the last five years of his life. The member of the president's cabinet, Albert Fall, was pardoned so he could die at, pardoned from prison so he could die at home. Richard Whitney, who is the president of the New York Stock Exchange, he went to jail. He named Sing Sing. The, the greatest wheat speculator, Arthur Cutton, died abroad insolvent. The head of the world's greatest monopoly, Ivor Druger, committed suicide, as well as two other of those men. You see, all of these men, they learned, all these men, they learned how to make money. Not one of them learned how to live. And Paul just gave it to you right here. Get dissatisfied where you are. And see, Paul's direction, a forgetful mindset. Paul's determination, don't give God what's left over, man, give him your best. And Paul's dedication, have a focus on him and for his glory. Life's not about you, man, it's about him. And if you will do those things, those rules for the race, you can run, and man, you can run well. God's told you how to live right here, and Paul's already done it. He's already finished his course with joy, he fought the faith. And if you do these things, you too can hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Gang, you can run. You really can. And you can run well. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Southland Podcast. May the message you've just heard be truth that transforms your heart and life. Christ loves you and wants you to grow in His grace through salvation and sanctification. If you've never placed your faith and trust in the finished work of Christ, we'd love to talk to you personally. Please give us a call at 318-894-9154 or shoot me an email at mherpster at southlandcamp.org. Christ has promised eternal life and a life worth living if you will only believe in Him. May the Lord bless you in your pursuit of Christ-like living. Tune in next time right here for another message on the Southland Podcast.